Good morning, everyone. Let's all open in our Bibles to Revelation 1. So this morning, if God keeps me on schedule, what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to peer into a portion of the glory of Jesus Christ. We're only going to be able to see a tiny little bit of it. So what I want us to understand as we're going into this is that this is just a portion. Jesus Christ, your Savior, is so much more glorious than this. He is infinitely more powerful and more beautiful than you or I can ever imagine. Our minds just can't handle it. So what we're going to do is we're just going to try. We're going to attempt to do it knowing that we won't be able to fully recognize his glory. Uh, That might be a little bit overwhelming for us, because there's so many things that I'm going to bring forward today that we can't comprehend. We're staring into eternity. So as we stare into eternity, what I want us to do is realize that it's okay that we don't understand it all. Uh, The Puritans, the way that they felt that they should meditate is they were looking at a diamond. They're looking at something so perfect and amazing. But you can only look at it, I mean, we're so flawed as humans, we can only look at it in just a portion at a time. We can only see one cut of it. There's no way that we're ever going to be able to see everything. But So what they would do is they would plod. They would say, okay, now I'm going to study this tiny portion, and I'm going to delve into it. And then I'm going to turn the diamond just a tiny bit, just a little bit, and then everything comes alive again. And it's more. And it's more impactful and more glorious. So think of this as something not like we're going to fully examine the glory of Christ, but this is a, a charge or something that I would request for you guys is this is the beginning of doing this for the rest of your life. So let's look at him this morning. Let's be amazed at him. And let's continue to do this tomorrow and the week after and the week after until we die, and then we'll do it again, you know, the week after, because we're going to be in heaven with Jesus. (laughs) So, with that in mind, let's read Revelation 1, the entire chapter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servant, to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace and peace to you, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To be glory, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, was, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was called, sorry, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Dear God, dear Jesus, we rejoice that you are risen and you are risen forevermore. We want to praise you with all of our hearts. If we are yours, Lord, that's just our desire. We crave more of you. So please reveal yourself to us, have mercy on us, and show us your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all that you have done for us, especially the death and the raising of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So he is risen, and he is glorious. 
Christ is alive and well. Death could not hold him. We went over in, on Friday, we went over the stark darkness of his death. But this morning is the opposite. It is nothing but sun and shining and glory. Because it says in Acts 2 that it was impossible for him to remain dead. No, in fact, he was raised. The body that was slain and this Savior who dropped his head in death after enduring the wrath of God did not follow suit with all men. All men, we all know this, all men die. All men will rot and decay, but he is alive. He, rather, was resurrected. And he was not just resurrected in spirit, but he was also resurrected in flesh. We can wrap our heads around the idea of him being resurrected in spirit and him maintaining consciousness, and then now he is with, Christ, with God. But this is an entirely different resurrection. His body was raised, flesh and everything. All men can keep their souls, but they cannot return to their bodies. No, unlike all men, he stood up and walked out of that tomb on that Sunday morning. His body was fully restored to him. Not only was his resurrection, was he resurrected in a true body, but he was also resurrected in a true body forevermore. It says in our text this morning that I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Do you realize how unique this is? For all human history since Adam, humans passed away. They did not remain living, but as soon as they were born, as wonderful as a new life is, as soon as a child is born, it has a death sentence upon it. It was only a matter of time, and it is only a matter of time, until all of the years of their life are gone. Humans do not remain in their state, but they wax and wane, and then they die. No matter how, some, how strong someone looks right now, even a, a young teenager or someone who has it all together, no matter how strong they look from na- uh, right now, 50 years from now, they will not look strong at all. And 100 years from now, they will be dead. It's hard for us to even imagine that life doesn't always work like this or that it doesn't work this way in Christ. We see our elders die, and it always does feel very unnatural because death is unnatural. But it would be far stranger to our senses to see someone not die, to, some, to see someone keep going on and on. We see people die young, and it is unnatural. But when we see someone live a long time, it's far stranger. We hear the stories in the Bible, early in the Bible, before the flood, where you had people living 900 years and 600 years, and it's really absurd to think about. It's even strange to think of those who are alive today who are 120 years old. There are people alive today who are 120 years old. And it's just a strange thing to think about. They must be extremely shriveled up. 
They are rare sights. And death becomes very common to us, rather. It's a very common sight and experience for us to see death, and it is very rare for us to see life enduring. But Christ, unlike us, is alive forevermore. He will not die. Decade upon decade, and century upon century, and millennia upon millennia, and on and on until eternity, he will live on. Nor does his semblance, nor does he give semblance or evidence of aging. He is now, as he always will be, alive and perfectly well, with no sickness to speak of, forever to enjoy the fullness of his undying body. The strength of his physical hands, his physical hands, are as they were 2,000 years ago. And so he will always be that strong. He is truly human, but he is so unlike us. Uh, Psalm 102, 26, and 27 say, But they will perish, but you remain. They will all, speaking of other, other people in all creation, they will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them. And they will be passed on. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. Now we hear that he remains the same, and we assume, we think that he must be referring, the writer here in the Psalms must be referring to God the Father in eternity past, before the incarnation, so therefore it doesn't apply to Jesus as the God-man. But in Hebrews, which is written after the resurrection, the writer quotes this verse, and he talks about the Son. He says that the Father says of the Son, you remain the same forever. And that's after the resurrection. He will always be the same, with no aging, no shadow, no variation due to change. There is going to be no variation in him forever. At this moment, if we were to see Christ... We would be, he would be the same as he was on that first Resurrection Sunday that he was resurrected. And he will be the same millennia and millennia into the future. He is the God-man who does not change. He is truly glorious. It's so unfathomable for us to try to wrap our heads around this. And it almost feels absurd, doesn't it? To never die or never to decay. But this unique and peculiar glory that is peculiar to him. It doesn't end there. He also has incomprehensible power. He is man, and he, even as man, releases and binds those in Hades at will. That's something that we can't even understand, how a man, a God-man, could bind and release those in Hades at his pleasure. 
If death takes a man, it is Christ's prerogative. It's his decision and his power under his control to receive that soul into heaven or not. It is his hand that welcomes him in or holds him into that cavern until they are to be resurrected themselves and face his judgment on the last day. We know this to be true. This isn't something that I invented. We know this is to be true because he says in, of himself in verse 18 of Revelation that I have the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys. He can do it. Our, resur- our resurrected Lord has that power in himself. Our Lord Jesus is a risen Lord who not only rules over us on earth, but he even rules over everyone in Hades now. Those in Hades are subservient to him. All creatures, all creatures everywhere at all times are under Christ's command. Even those that gnash their teeth at him come and go at his pleasure. He is sovereign over who is released and who remains, who remains in Hades. We see a foretaste of this power over Hades in Hosea thirteen fourteen, When the word asks, shall I, ransom who, uh, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? This is Christ, and he takes who he wishes. It's his choice. He asks, who shall I ransom with my power from Sheol? It is his choice. So I ask of you to know the glory of the risen Lord and hail him who commands all the inhabitants of the afterlife too. And it doesn't just say that he has the keys of Hades. It's not just the holding place of the dead that he has control over. But he also has the keys of death. Nothing dies outside of the control of our risen Lord. He uh, is appointed man once to die. And it is Jesus that appoints it. He gives life and he takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abraham Kuyper summarized well the total power that Jesus has over all things present and future, all things on earth and under the earth. He summarized it well with this statement. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that's mine. He is so powerful and glorious. Now, this great power is not something that we can easily relate to. We can't hold a candle to his power. We can't do any of this, but our risen Lord can. Not just a man, but our risen Savior, the one who we worship every Sunday. He can do this, and he does this all the time, constantly. 
We cannot worship created things when the glory of our risen Savior holds so much glory in himself. No, we must worship him. If we get a glimpse of him, we have to worship him. Now, Jesus is truly man, but he is far more. Just because he is man does not mean that he has given up his power that he retains being truly God. In his condescension, he emptied himself, not to be divested of his godhood, but being born in the likeness of sinful men, he acted with many of the limitations that men have. But now, rather, Jesus is risen in full majesty, and he no longer sees fit to limit himself or his power. He's not holding back anymore. His glory is full and fully realized. I wish we had time to go into all the descriptions that we read in Revelation of Christ in his appearance. Every phrase that we read is just so perfect and it shows the glory of Christ and how awesome he is. But we don't have time for that this morning, so let's just read it and suffice it to say that he is just so much more than this. Let this description of him wash over you. It says of him in chapter 1, Revelation, verse 14, if you want to follow along. The, he- the hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And, the voice, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Lord, have mercy on the man who looks at this God-man, Jesus Christ who has been resurrected forevermore. He is truly man, but he is not merely man. He is terrifyingly more. It would be terrifying to see him. But listen closely. When we meditate on this, we will start to feel a certain way. We will start to be amazed at his glory, hopefully. But... If we have our senses about us, we will start to recoil. However, the words that come out of Jesus' mouth are not what we would expect. His words do not comport with our fears. This fearsome and holy Jesus Christ says, fear not. He says, fear not. After John sees him, he falls down. John falls down as though he's dead. Because I'm sure he would assume that he's about to die. I'm sure that he would want to die because it's so terrifying to see. Imagine seeing the glory of Christ right before you. Not just imagining it, but to actually see him before, if he was here now. Would you not feel unworthy? Would you not feel as though you were ready to die and that you deserve to. He is terrified, and he is scared to look at him. Not because he looks spooky 
or strange like in a horror film, but because he sees Jesus represented as he actually is. The risen God-man who is both physical, who is physical and eternal and all-powerful. I'm sure he was terrified. But Jesus says, fear not. We would fall on our faces too. But he says to him and to us, fear not. And why is that? Why can he say, fear not? Because Jesus is the fearsome one. He is powerful. He is sovereign and he is eternal. And he is terrifying. But the crazy part here is that all of that is for you. And it's not against you. All that might and all that power and glory is for you guys. If you're his, it's for you. And it's not against you in any way, shape, or form. He died for you. He gave his life for you. And he was raised for you. It says in Romans 4.25 that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So he was raised for our justification. Being raised from the dead was for your salvation. It was for you. We hear much about the beautiful truth that we meditated on on Friday night, that he died for us. And that he was willing to do it all for our sake. But we don't often hear that he was, in fact, raised for us. If that doesn't make you crumble over the honor that God has graciously placed on you, I don't know what will. He was raised so that you would not remain in your sins. He raised Jesus, God the Father raised Jesus so that you would be saved and one day join him in his resurrection. Now I want to clarify, listen, I fully believe that God is all about God and he's about the glory of God. He's about his own glory. And God the Father is, and God the Son, God the Spirit, far more important than us. But the fact of the matter is that Christ and God make much of us. Not deservingly, but he does make much of us. Let that be what impacts you. We should be crushed by the weight of the glory of Christ, as we went through earlier. But how much more would it crush us to know that the glorious Christ and his Father lifts you up and sets you on a high place and has a wedding feast with you, where you are honored. It starts to make sense now that you have nothing to fear because Jesus is for you. I was completely amazed with Brooklyn's vows when she got married. What made me so amazed was that she was the bride and she didn't spend all of her time glorifying herself. On that day, when she would be most expected to focus on herself, she didn't. But rather, as she was reading her vows, she spent her time crying because of the grace of God 
that was given to her. She was not, she knew that she was not owed a husband. But God provided one for her because he is good. This is the kind of countenance that we should always have. We who are undeserving are given as a husband Jesus Christ. And we need not fear because he loves us. And he will always use his power for our benefit. It will be to benefit us. will be how he dispenses with his glorious power. As an example of his character, we can recall that we will all stand, every single one of us, just or unjust, will stand before God, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we all know that we should be told by him that he does not know us. And that we should, be, we should depart into eternal torment. We should be told that we don't know him because we have acted so wickedly in sinning against him. His glory, the glory that we just went over, we're sinning against him. We're spitting in his face when we don't do what he asks But he doesn't say that to us. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we fittingly would respond, but Lord, you don't know what I have done. But don't forget, don't we should not forget that he loves his people. Of course he would provide for us. Of course he would rise, he would die and rise so that we would be provided for. Do you think that he would use his power and his glory any other way towards you? No. How could he if he loves you? He is for you, so we fear not. Not because he is not fearsome, but because that power and fearsomeness is applied to us in the kindest of ways. It says in Romans 8 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And all things includes the power of Christ. Now, there is a sense in which we should fear Christ. There are many commands in the Bible where it says, don't fear man, but rather fear God. And we should honor him and respect him and serve him with reverence. But this is something that I, it's been a long time of me coming to this conclusion. Um, at first, I always assumed, well, it would, it's leaning lightly on the Bible if we say that we shouldn't be terrified of God. I was always thinking that because it makes the most sense. We should fear him. But the more I study this term, the more I recognize that it's not a fear of terror. In the way that it's used, if you look at the context and how people are expected to act after he says something like this, it's not a fear of terror. If we are in Christ, we fear God in total submission and respect, but not in terror or fright. 
We get glimpses of that terror and that fright, and we are amazed that we are shielded from that by his sovereign kindness that he chooses to bestow on us. So the text gives us many reasons why we are not to fear. One, what we went over, is that he is alive forevermore. He is alive forevermore. And he is taking you with him. The hymn puts it well that we will sing later, and I hope we all sing really loud. Soar we now where Christ has led, hallelujah. Following our exalted head, hallelujah. Made like him, like him we rise, hallelujah. Ours the cross, the grave, and the skies, hallelujah. Life is not one that God, uh, he, uh, his life is not one that he hawks to himself, but rather he gives abundantly eternal life to all that are his. So rest in him and do not fear because he lives. Don't fear because he lives. Another reason why he says not to fear is because he has been given the keys of death in Hades. For those of you who break your brain constantly over fears of death, know this, that no strangers, no government, no friends, nor enemies, no spiritual forces, and no material world even, holds your life in their hands. It's Jesus who holds your life in his hands. So fear not. Don't fear. For those of you who doubt your salvation, not because you, show, you don't show any love or you don't desire him or you don't have any obedience towards him, but to those of you who fear your, the loss of your salvation because you fear that he won't act mercifully towards you, Fear not. It's Christ who precisely will be merciful. He's the only one who would be merciful to you. He is the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. Ask this, will he not permit you into his kingdom? Not looking at yourself, but looking at him and his character. Will he not permit you into his kingdom? Now this leads me to the saddest part of this message which is a warning. That I warn you that it's not this freedom, that this freedom not to fear is only given to his sheep and not to anyone else. If you don't love him, if you don't love Jesus, then fear. He will not spare you. And you will wish that you had never lived when you stand before the risen Lord, awaiting his judgment. If you don't seek to obey him, if you don't want to love him with your obedience, then your descent and your hell, descent into hell will be accomplished by Jesus, and he will make sure that it is done. And it will be done as all creation 
is praising Jesus for his justice. If you don't obey Christ, if you don't love Christ, you will descend into hell forevermore, and all the rest of creation will be praising God for his goodness. Because he is just. So if you don't seek to obey him at all, then fear. But never forget this. If you are unsure of whether you are his or not, it's simple. Simply begin to trust him with your life. He is almighty and he is good. Do not leave your life in your own hands, but rather place it in Christ's. There is no price to make yourself Christ at all. There's no price to make yourself his. All that is necessary is that you trust him. So trust him. We know his character. Just trust him, and you will be his forevermore. He will not mishandle your soul, and he will preserve it if you trust in him. Our Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and we need not fear. So, I have another question, which we'll go over briefly, which is, how can we not fear? Practically, what should that look like? Well, in our relationship with Christ, the first thing that we must not do is cower or run or turn from him. Rather, always, always, always run to him. If you sin, and you will sin, do not imagine that you need to hide yourself from Christ in any way. And actually ask yourself the question, do I feel like I need to hide myself from Christ right now? Because you don't. You need not fear. Show yourself to him so that he can reconcile you to himself. And what's more is you're not doing anything by trying to cover up your sins. You're not doing anything at all. It's not like he can't see what you're doing. It's not like he can't see what you've done. It's not like he doesn't see it as you're doing it. And it's not like he can't know your heart and the wretched depths of them. Any attempt to look respectable in front of Christ when you're sinning is like using a hand's towel to cover up your nakedness. It only serves to magnify the fact that you're naked. So be honest with him. Confess your sin to him and put it out in the light. Not only do we need to put what we've done out in the light because it's not hidden, but we also need to put our hearts out in the light because it's not hidden either. If you are cold and dead in your walk, if you don't love him, if you're not looking for him, if you don't desire him, then all you can do is tell him. Be honest with God. We share often, unfortunately, about our outward sins. It's easier to talk about our outward sins. But when we're sharing these things with others, it's much harder for us to share the wickedness that's in our hearts, the pride the covetousness, that's a lot harder to share. The lust, the evil that we desire is a lot harder to share. 
But Christ cares about what's inside first. It's not like he doesn't care about the outside, but he cares, he prioritizes it. He says, care about the inside first and then the outside. He says to the Pharisees, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. First clean the inside and then you can clean the outside. So share your wretched heart with him. He is the only one that can cleanse it. And don't fear bringing it to him because he will deal with it best. And we must also not fear the outcome of obeying him. We must not fear the outcome of obeying him. If he tells you something, if your Lord Jesus tells you something, then that settles it. Do it. Decide beforehand. This is a very practical way to do it. Decide beforehand that whatever he tells you, you will do. Because once afterwards, then you're thinking about the ramifications. Okay, well, if I obey him, then this might happen. That's not your job. That's God's job. Decide beforehand that he's your master. Decide beforehand, I'm going to obey him whatever he says. He has what is best for you, and he is so worthy of your obedience. So obey your Lord Jesus Christ, and don't fear the outcome of obeying him. And lastly, do not fear anything else in all creation. Live with abandon in serving your Lord, and don't fear what men can do to you. Don't fear man. What could they possibly do to you? Your Lord is stronger than their Lord. He is victorious and awesome and enthroned in the heavens right now. So we should live like it. He rose from the dead, and you will too. That's a promise. Don't fear their schemes. We need to be encouraged. We need more courage in our hearts. Know this, that we win. He is victorious So let's praise him today and tomorrow and next week until we die. And he gives us life anew with him forever and ever. Psalm 47.6 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Sing praises. For God is king over, the, over all the earth. Sing praises to God, for God is king over all the earth.